G'day folks and welcome. I'm Chris Faber. And I'm TJ Stedman. And you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. So last week we featured our interview with Vaughan Gregory, frontman of the Christian metal band Grave Forsaken. That was a nice change of pace, but we're back into Genesis 1 this week. Yeah, that's right, Chris. This week we begin our study of day six, which has a lot more going on than the other days. In this episode, we're going to cover Genesis 1, verses 24 to 25. We'll get into the creation of man next time. But for now, we want to focus on the other stuff that God made good for kids who want to learn to do other stuff good too. Zoolander! Classic! Did you say zoo? That makes me think about animals. Was that a segue? Uh, Well, I don't know. Is it working? It is a pretty good segue. Well, then it was. Uh, Seamless. Uh, Yeah, so here's our text to get us started from the NIV. Verse 24, And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Now, I'm pretty sure... That there's a lot more to life than being really, really, ridiculously made in God's image. And I plan on finding out what that is. (laughs) So before we look at the creation of man, which we're usually so busy straining towards that we overlook everything else on day six, we're going to talk about animals. Just imagine it. What a neat achievement it would be. I felt like singing that, but I won't. (laughs) Oh, thank you for not singing it. The first phrase here is already controversial. I'm not even going to ease you into it. The text says that God said... Let the land produce living creatures. Where do the living creatures come from? Well, it sounds very much like they come from the land, and I have never heard that in church. Over 40 years I've been in the evangelical church, I have never heard that. What I hear in church is that God created the living creatures, that God made all the animals. Later, we read it in the second part of our reading, in the next verse it says that God made them. But does that mean that we can ignore that God said let the land produce the living creatures. I don't think we can afford to ignore that statement. I think when God says, let the land produce the living creatures, then we have to take that seriously. We have to accept that that is what God said. And if God said that, we need to be okay with it. So what does that mean for creation? Where does that leave us if we want to affirm that God made everything? Well, the first part of the verse tells us what God said, and it ends with the result being that it was so. In other words, what God said got done. The land did produce the animals. That's the affirmation of the text. The Bible is saying that. The author is saying that. God is saying that. God literally tells us that the animals were brought forth from the land by the word of God. So why am I stressing this? Well, because I want it to be perfectly clear that, firstly, this didn't start with me, and it didn't start with John Walton, and it didn't start with Charles Darwin, and it didn't start with Martin Luther, and it didn't start with your favorite church father. It's right there in Genesis 1. God didn't poof the animals into being out of thin air. He allowed the land to produce them. But the very next verse says, God made them. Let's read it again. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Here the author repeats the phrase according to their kinds three times. So what's going on here? Because it kind of sounds like God is making distinction between the animals rather than actually creating them from nothing. 
It's definitely not the language we would expect if it was supposed to be describing material creation. And we're back to that functional ontology again. Each category of living creatures is separated according to purpose. And it's in that act of allocating each group to a specific role that they find their purpose and therefore their existence. So again, it's creation, just not as we know it. And that goes back to what we saw in our discussion of creation in the earlier episode on the word bara. There's an aspect of creation that is chiefly concerned with making distinction between different things. And that's what we're seeing. So two things have occurred here. God spoke and the land produced the animals. And God gave each separate kind of animal a job to do. Now, I'm not spending much time on the issue of the duration of days here in Genesis 1. But as I mentioned in passing a few weeks back, we should have noticed that these processes take more than a day. Just as seed-bearing plants and fruit trees don't grow in a day, likewise the animals aren't going to arise from the earth in a single day either. But again, these events were not written so you can use your calendar to find out when they happened. The events are recorded to give meaning to your calendar. Welcome to the ancient world, where all the words mean something else and time doesn't matter. I'm joking, of course, but you just can't be sure that the way you read it as a modern person is the way an ancient writer expected to be understood. The purpose of numbered days in the Genesis account is not to show us the order in which these things happened. We think that just because the days are numbered sequentially that it's giving us chronology. That's simply not the case. We are reading a text designed to tell us that life in Israel was supposed to follow a pattern. The pattern God gave at Sinai. Six days of work and one day of rest. We're not ordering the days, we're counting them. That's why we start with one, not first. The author is portraying God as a good worker. He does his work in six days, rests on the seventh. God doesn't need rest, but he's modelling this for us. And how does God do his work? It's not how we work. He speaks. Once again, we have that passive speech from God. And for those who came in late, I've been saying this just about every week and nothing's changed. God permits this process of the land generating the animals. He doesn't just make it happen. There's no verbiage suggesting physical acts of creation. There's no force or conflict. God speaks and it happens. This isn't God taking credit for natural processes. God causes them and gives them meaning. So you said something about the animals having jobs to do. Is that like the spiritual beings we were looking at before, back in episode 11? Sort of. These aren't supernatural entities, but they definitely have jobs to do in God's good world. They're very natural creatures, and we don't find here the kind of double meaning that occurs in some other places in the text, but that doesn't make them any less interesting. We find the animals divided into three separate categories of function. Number one being the livestock for working the land under the utility of man. Number two, the wild beasts to perpetuate renewal and cleanse the land. And number three, the creeping things, which I'm going to explain, are divine functionaries on the land. Okay, so the first one's obvious. Livestock are the animals that ancient people used to provide resources and to do work. You have your dairy animals, your meat animals, your animals raised for products like wool, hair or skins. Sometimes they did combinations of these things. You'd make garments from wool and then eat the sheep. They were pretty creative with what they could do with animal parts. The ancient Assyrian warriors used to get the skins of goats and inflate them so they could use them like scuba tanks to breathe underwater. And that's how they'd sneak into cities, by going under the wall at the city's water supply where the river flowed in. And you also had work animals, beasts of burden. Think like Flintstones, but not with dinosaurs. You'd have an ox for dragging your plough or crushing grain. You had a donkey to ride to get you places. 
Sorry to disappoint you, but they definitely did not use birds as telephones. They yabba dabba didn't. But anyway, livestock are defined by their purposes. So I'm sorry about that. It was terrible. These are animals that serve the needs of humans. Moving on to the next category, we have wild beasts. Understanding this means taking a step further back into the ancient mind. When it comes to livestock, we modern people can sort of get an idea of what that means. If you've had any country life or time on a farm, livestock is an easy concept to grasp, but wild beasts are different. To get your head around the concept of the role of wild beasts, you really need to grasp the chaos-order dichotomy. We talked a little bit about chaos and order and created things in earlier episodes, but now I want to illustrate it in another way. Think about a farm. You have your farmhouse where the family lives. Around the farmhouse is a garden for growing food for the family. In the garden, there's pets and chickens and that sort of thing. Beyond the garden is the farmland, paddocks, orchards, stalls for animals. This is where the livestock are. This is where you grow crops to eat and to sell. And then you reach the boundaries of the farm. Outside of that, there's the wild, bushland and wilderness. You don't go there. That's where the wild things are. Now, consider these different zones for argument's sake as concentric rings around the farmhouse. The inner circle is the garden. It's highly organised, it's structured and purposeful and neat. It's complex, it's regularly maintained. There's no weeds, there's no wild animals. You interact with the garden every day. You tend it, you keep it, you control all that happens in your garden. Everything is thriving, but nothing is overgrown. Taking a step out into the fields now, you're in a bigger place where you have less control. Out here, you still interact regularly with the environment and on the macro level, you determine what will happen to it. You take broad measures to get the result you want and you have to accept that there will be exceptions to the rules. For example, you clear your field, but you might not get all the rocks out. You plant your crops, but you still get a few weeds. You care for your livestock, but occasionally you lose a few. Some of your seeds don't grow. This is the extent of control that you have, and part of what you can't control is what lurks on the outskirts of the land. Beyond the borders of the farm, there are wild animals, creatures that you can't hope to control. Their domain is the untouched wilderness. They don't live by rules like the livestock and the pets do. They exist in liminal spaces, the zones between inhabited lands. And their job is to be wild out there. So if a goat or a donkey decides to stray from its place on the farm, the wild beasts are going to take care of it. This is a place where you have no power or influence over the land. These concentric rings around the farmhouse represent levels of order. Previously, I described order on a sliding scale, but this is a more developed model on the same principle. The centre is highly ordered, the outer edge is chaotic, and the function of the wild beast is to operate beyond that boundary, consuming whatever fragments might break off from the ordered system. If the crop naturally spreads seed beyond the farm's edge, the wild animals are going to eat it. The farmer's job, on the other hand, is to maintain order from his side of the boundary, keeping the wild beasts out. So order emanates geographically from the centre of the system, whereas chaos encroaches across the entire radius over time. It takes hold on the outer limits because there's less positive action maintaining order out on the fringe. The wild beasts function as agents of chaos on one hand as they disrupt the plans of men, but they also act as agents of renewal. The jackal devours the dead sheep and cleanses the land from the defilement of death. The lion removes the weakest goat from the flock. And sometimes, for whatever reason, rarely and often unexpectedly, Wild animals overtake the land, destroying all in their path and leaving nothing behind them. This is recreation. A void is created for a new order to take shape, and the wild beasts will be driven back into the wilderness again. If geographical proximity to the centre is the basis of order, 
then it is the expanse of long periods of time that epitomizes chaos. Over time, all that is distant from the center will become consumed by chaotic forces. That's why maintaining order takes work. Now, that's just the farm, but it happens on different scales. It happens in your house. It happens in your own body. And at the macro level, it happens to nations, even the world. Chaos comes from outside and it wears you down looking for an opening, a weak link, a struggling lamb, and then it pounces. But we need to resist seeing chaos as necessarily evil. Sometimes chaos is needed. Look at the flood, for example, and we will be doing that eventually. So wild beasts have a job to do in maintaining order negatively. The gardener creates order positively, and between them, things function as they should. That's why God called it good, even though we don't necessarily like wild animals. We need them. So what about the creeping things then? What's their job? Bugs. Uh, uh Uh-huh, yeah. What are they good for? Absolutely nothing. Nothing. Wow. Yeah. There's too much singing on this episode. Too much. Too much singing. (laughs) Cut it out. Stop laughing. The the creepy crawly critters are a category of their own. Uh, You know, whether it's bugs, rodents, reptiles, amphibians, or whatever other types come to mind, we're talking here about all the little creatures that don't fit in with either of the other two categories. They're not a threat to man. They aren't any use to him either. Creatures like this posed a question for ancient people. Everything is defined by function, right? So everything has a use. Every creature has a role to play. They're good for something. They have to be part of some bigger system, carrying out their job in the ordered world. Otherwise, they don't exist. So we see these bugs and creepy things, but we don't know what they do. Ancient people had a solution for this problem, and it might make you laugh, but it's actually pretty smart and quite intuitive. Creeping things, and this extends to little birds and tiny sea creatures too, served as divine functionaries. They do stuff for the gods. So God needs something done. He whistles and rounds up a bunch of worms or sparrows or flies or hornets. He gives them the job. In this way, God keeps everything working in the world. So the logic is, if these creatures are no good for people, can't eat it, can't use it, then they must be useful to God. So these little creatures do God's bidding. Maybe you've started connecting the dots already, but think about it. How did God deliver the plagues in Egypt? How did God drive out the Amorite kings, Sihon and Og? He used these little creatures. He uses the bugs and the frogs and the nasty little bitey things. So every animal, every creature God has made has purpose. They're just waiting for a job. Hey, Tim, you mentioned the eating of animals for meat earlier, and I was just thinking that some of our listeners uh, might be thinking that God never said people could eat meat in the original creation or the vegetarian listeners amongst us. So is that okay or not? Mm, Good one. Well, it's it's true that the text doesn't expressly say people were allowed to eat meat, but there's a lot of things it doesn't say. What we do know from Genesis is that sacrifices were brought before the Lord by Cain and Abel. The good offering that God accepted was one of meat, and offerings weren't just given to God, they were shared. You cooked some and you ate it, You burned the rest, so the smoke went up to God, and that's how you you gave some to God. You poured out the blood on the ground so that it went back to the earth that it came from. So there's evidence from the text that meat was eaten prior to the flood and that God was okay with it. This is obviously not an argument to say that vegans are unbiblical or something, but it does show that eating meat is not unbiblical. Just wanted to clear that up. Whether you eat meat or not, You still need to eat as a creature of conscience. There are still ethical issues, but I'm not going there on this podcast. You can figure that out for yourself. Well described and explained as always, and that's certainly a delicious dilemma to end our study for this week. What exciting things are coming up next time, Tim? 
Okay, so next time we have an interesting study. I did say that we're getting into the creation of man, and of course that's where we're headed in the text, but before we deal directly with humans in the text, uh, we've got to look at that weird thing where God, who up until that point has apparently been acting alone, says, let us. Uh, there's plural language there, so what's up with that? It's not as simple as you might think, but it's definitely interesting. So make sure you come back next week for that one, and we will get into the creation of man. Also, check out the other podcasts at Raven Creek in the meantime, in case you're interested in supporting the people who make my podcast possible, and that's not me and Chris, by the way, please consider getting on Patreon and supporting the Raven Creek Social Club. The good folks who run that whole enterprise are actually supporting Chris and I by hosting our podcast. So if you appreciate that, please slip in a few bucks, and there are some perks to that as well. So it's not a one-way street. You get some cool stuff in return including unique and bespoke merchandise. And you can also get added to the exclusive Raven Creek Paddle Store, which is a private Facebook group where you can chat with me and hosts of the other shows and some really great knowledgeable people who were handpicked to help you get to know the Word of God better and deepen your relationship with Christ and His church. I've certainly found that valuable, and I'm sure you will too. Uh, in the meantime, let's see what we've got in the mail. Uh, have we got any uh, giant questions today, Chris? I want to hear your giant questions. If you have a question about stuff you've heard on the show or somewhere else, something you found in your Bible or just some general feedback you'd like to tell us and the world at large, here's how you do it. Head to the website at giantanswers.com. Send me an email at giantanswers@outlook.com. I personally receive all your mail and I will try to get to all of it. I love hearing from you, especially if I can help you get answers to your giant questions. Well, this is answers to giant questions, so it's only fitting that we should get a question about a genuine giant. And, of course, I'm not talking about Andre the Giant. I'm talking about the greatest giant, Goliath. Danny asked this question on Facebook, and he's one of our new mates in the Raven Creek Paddle Store discussion group. So thank you. He, and he was able to bring us this question directly. I was reading that the killing of Goliath is attributed to both David and Elhanan. And you can uh, you know, correct my mispronunciation there. The way it is described in the Bible is clearly descri describing two different events. It is later clarified that it was Goliath's brother killed by Elhanan. In the older text, are they just using the name Goliath interchangeably to talk about a Gittite giant, since it was obviously his brother? Mm. Okay. Well, firstly, let me just say that this is a good question. I'm glad you asked, Danny. This one gets a little sticky because we have to get into manuscript issues. Uh, right off the bat, it should be clear to all and sundry that David is, in fact, the guy who killed Goliath, as Danny has rightly pointed out in his question. You only have to read 1 Samuel chapter 17 to see that, and if you want to hear a good podcast on that, have a listen to Faith and Other Oddities with Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. They tackled David and Goliath in episodes 93 through 96. Uh, I don't recall much being said in those episodes about this textual issue, though, and probably because we don't find the problem in 1 Samuel. It's actually in 2 Samuel that we have this problem appear. So that little fact right there should tell us something important. If the two passages in question appear to be contradictory, but they were written by the same guy, then we can rule out the idea that maybe this was someone else's point of view and they saw it differently. Two passages... Same author, and in fact, the only reason it's not the same scroll that both passages were written on is that scrolls weren't made big enough for the entire manuscript to fit. So it's actually a variance within a single document by a single author. And that means we need to consider the possibility that the author isn't trying to contradict himself, and that maybe something else has come into play. But before we go any further, let's actually look at the text in question. 
We'll start with 1 Samuel 17 just to establish the main narrative. Here's verse 4. I'm going to use the ESV for all of these quotes. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. Later, this same Goliath is referred to as the Philistine when we read of his death at the hands of David in verse 50 of the same chapter as follows. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. So clear as day, David kills Goliath. But then, staying with the ESV here and moving on to 2 Samuel 21, 19, it's suddenly Elhanan, one of David's mighty men, who gets the credit. Here's the passage. And there was again war with the Philistines at Gob, and Elhanan, the son of Yaragim, the Bethlehemite, struck down Goliath the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. Now, the ESV does include a footnote here, but still preserves the text as received. And the footnote informs us that the other source that preserves this story, which is First Chronicles chapter 20 and verse 5, includes words that we don't find here in Second Samuel. Three little words that change killed Goliath into killed the brother of Goliath. That's a significant difference. So if the ESV translators know that this other version of the story exists, and obviously they have 1 Samuel 17, which makes it clear, why don't they correct the translation of 2 Samuel 21:19? And the answer is, one, because they aren't working with a version of the manuscript that says any different, and two, because changing the text so that it reads right in your opinion or conforms with something else isn't the right thing to do. They're aware of the issue. They made the footnote. They've covered their backsides. I should act, by the way, that I'm not singling out the ESV. There are other translations doing the same thing and even more adding to the text to smooth out the issue. Now, Danny, who asked this question, is right when he says that this was obviously not the same event here and therefore not the same giant being killed. We see that from the context of the passages, and you just have to read a few chapters either side of these verses we've cherry-picked here to get some historical context. The killing of Goliath by David occurs in a different place, and also at a different time to the killing of Goliath's brother, as recorded elsewhere. David kills Goliath in the Valley of Elah, and he does it at a time when King Saul is alive. The other event goes down at a place called Gob, and it's after Saul is dead. So that's pretty clear. And just to clear up the other potential ambiguity, David and Elhanan can't be different names for the same guy because they've got different dads too. And you're not going to convince me that their dads were actually the same dude with two names as well. But the question remains, how did we end up with the reading that we have? And Danny's actual question here is, are they just calling any old giant Goliath here? What's going on? So we've got our simple solution to smooth out the discrepancy. Two out of three texts have David killing Goliath. What's up with the outlying text then? Why does 2 Samuel 21.19 read differently? Now, credit is due here to Dr. Michael Heiser, who wrote an article on this issue for Bible Study Magazine some years ago. You can find it online. Just search BibleStudyMagazine.com, and the article is called Clash of the Manuscripts, Goliath and the Hebrew Text of the Old Testament. And that's from October 31st, 2014. Now, Heiser is a Semitic language expert and textual scholar specializing in Old Testament, so he knows what he's doing. Remember how it says that the shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam. That phrase of a weaver in the Hebrew is oregim. It refers to a weaver every time it gets used. So why is it attached to the name Yara Oregim 
in Second Samuel. That's weird because it isn't even a proper name, like ever. Well, it turns out that in the original manuscript, that word appears in the line below as part of the, that phrase, spear was like a weaver's beam, as in right below it. And what the scribe has done is he's glanced at his original, back to his own copy, and he's written origim, the word for weaver, which appears on the line below the one he's writing, and he's put it in the wrong line without noticing, and he's just carried on. So the word appears in the same position on two lines of text, and it's only supposed to be on the second line, not the first. The result is that this guy, Jar, gets his name accidentally modified to Yar Oragim. Anyway, the scribe's really messed up here because he's continued on that line and made another mistake. The Hebrew word that indicates who is the direct subject of a verb looks almost identical to the word that means the brother of. So it would be understandable if a scribe copied it incorrectly and thus accidentally omitted the reference to the brother. And that's what he's done. It all snowballs from here. A subsequent scribe later on is reading this incorrect manuscript. It's all he has to go by, but he's not sure what to do with it. He's not allowed to remove anything from the text. So he has to figure out some way to make some sense out of this. If he does nothing, it makes no sense. It'd say something like, And Elhanan son of Yara of a weaver killed Lami Goliath the Gittite. So at this point, what the scribe knows is that Yara Oragim sounds weird, but better than Yara of a weaver. So he modifies the name rather than remove the extra word. And then he's hit this other problem, the missing referent to the brother. He doesn't realize it's missing, but we can't have Goliath with two names here. He's not Lami Goliath, especially because that word Lami doesn't turn up anywhere else in the Bible. So maybe it isn't a name. It translates as my bread. So maybe that's why he hasn't noticed the fact that son of isn't there in the text. If he saw son of my bread, he would have twigged that it's a name. But uh, the scribe gets creative and he modifies Lahmi, my bread, to the Bethlehemite, the one from the house of bread. The end result is the change from Elhanan, the son of Yair, st struck down Lahmi, the brother of Goliath the Gittite, to Elhanan, son of Yair, or again, the Bethlehemite, killed Goliath of Gath. And that's how he smooths out all the grammar and the odd words in the dodgy manuscript a legacy preserved to this day. And if it wasn't for the other two textual witnesses, especially 1 Chronicles 20 verse 5, we might have had continuing doubts about who really did bring down Goliath or how many Goliaths there were. So the end of all this, and to answer the question definitively for you, Danny, it might seem like there was more than one giant called Goliath if both David and Elhanan were said to have killed him. But the truth is that the giant killed by Elhanan was actually Goliath's brother who was named Lahmi, a fact that's a little less obvious due to scribal errors way back in the early days of the tradition, so early, in fact, that both the Masoretic text and the Septuagint preserve the error. Fortunately for us, the corrections were also preserved, and with a little sniffing around, we can make sense of it all. And that's the end of that. But did you notice the name Yair, which I mentioned in a recent Q&A on the podcast about Jesus and the Balm of Gilead, and how Yair is a name that connects us to the Rephaim? Yair was the guy who was judge of Israel and he took the 60 cities of Gilead in Bashan, the land of the Rephaim. And in this story, the son of Yair, same name, not the same guy, kills a giant said to be one of the sons of Raphah. That's another thread we're picking up with the gospel writer Mark who uses that to connect to the Messiah. Cool, huh? Anyway, I thought you might all like that little tidbit. So for those who came in late, you can go back and listen to that one in episode 10.
we were just talking about Goliath, the most famous of the giants, and as we know from Scripture, there were many others. The Bible only gives details about Goliath's height, and no other person in all of Scripture is actually personally measured and given an exact height in units of measure. Even Goliath's height is disputed. But we know that the giants were tall because that's what the Bible tells us in several places. I'm talking about height because it's common in some circles for people to be very wary or suspicious around tall people today. Maybe this guy or that guy is one of the Nephilim. The same goes for people of the uh, polydactyl trait where they have six fingers or toes at their extremities. We even see this kind of stigma around red hair or extra teeth, believe it or not. Now, I went to school with a kid who had extra fingers. I have a mate with one extra toe. Uh, my gardener is a guy with bright red hair, and he's a good few inches taller than me. His family heritage is from a place not far away from a land known for ancient giants. But I don't worry that these people might kill and or eat me. So why not? Most of this stuff is coming to us passed down from folk tales with mythological origins. Maybe there was some stuff in the ancient world that we could connect to actual giants. As an example, if you've been reading the passages we were just talking about in 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles about the giants, you know that there was a giant with extra digits. As I point out in my book, that one guy was so remarkable that they didn't even bother with recording his name. It was like, well, I don't have to tell you his name. You know who I mean. That guy with the extra fingers and toes. Like, we all know who that guy is. He was a well-known exception to the norm. The other giants were not like that. In other words, and contrary to the kind of garbage you hear from many commentators on the giants, there actually is no such thing as a Nephilim profile. You're never going to find a real example of an enormous person with red hair, double rows of teeth, six fingers or toes on each limb, grey or pasty looking skin, black eyes. Am I missing anything? Oh, uh, and, a, and a height to chest ratio of three to one or something. Yada, yada, yada. Uh, it's, it's also true that the idea of passing down secret Nephilim bloodlines is garbage as well. It simply cannot happen. At the moment, I'm reading uh, S. Joshua Swamidas and his book, The Genealogical Adam and Eve. And what I'm really appreciating about it is that he points out the fact that you can trace genealogies back some two to 3,000 years, actually longer. And when you do that, you discover that thousands of people alive back then were all, genealogically speaking, ancestors of every person alive today. It's simply impossible to rule out interbreeding between populations. And the moment a single individual interbreeds into a population, they break that genealogical isolation, becoming a common ancestor to the entire population in that group in a relatively short time frame. So there is no such thing as a secretly preserved bloodline. So all those conspiracy theorists are just barking up the wrong tree? Yep, the wrong family tree even. See what I did there? I see it, and I don't like it. <laughs> oh dear. Uh, additionally, genetic material comes down to you from a very wide pool. If you get half your DNA from each parent and they get theirs the same way, then you only have to go back 10 generations and you're getting maybe a tenth of 1% of your DNA from that branch of your genealogy. 10 generations is only 200, 300 years. Go back 3,000 or 6,000 years and you have absolutely zero genetic contribution from any specific person. This means that even if you had the biblical Nephilim in your ancestry, after a half dozen generations or so, there'd be no DNA of substance that would make you any different to any other human without Nephilim descent. 
It just so happens that 3,000 years ago, King David killed the last of the biblical giants. That means that nobody alive today, or even in the recent past, has any genetic connection to any of them, even if they are genealogically connected to them. So it's nonsensical from a scientific standpoint to point to someone's red hair or their unusual height today and suggest that they might be giants. That makes as much sense as me saying, well, the sun is round and this tennis ball is round, therefore this ball is the sun. Now, you don't get to choose some distant ancestor in particular and say, well, I'm connected to that ancestor, but not these other ones. You, know, you have four grandparents and you're connected to all of them. You have 16 great, great grandparents and you're connected to all of them. You're connected as much to the giants as you are to Adam and Eve, as much to Abraham as you are to Og of Bashan, as much to the line of Christ as you are to the line of Muhammad. If you go back far enough, we all share the same ancestry, and that's why genetics will never find Nephilim DNA. That's why the bloodline theory of the Nephilim or the seed of the serpent simply cannot work. Your connection to the ancient past might be genealogical, but it is not genetic. It's diluted like a single drop of ink in the Atlantic. You physically cannot be genetically connected to the giants. So stop looking for genetic traits in other people who all share your ancestry, by the way, and judging them as different and somehow genetically evil. It's garbage. But it sure has been an effective way of dividing people, and that's what a true son of the devil would want, isn't it? It's not about genetics. It's all about control. And people who've separated themselves or excluded others from the church are playing into that game whether they know it or not. Those outside of the church see the church as a control mechanism. What they don't see is that they're already being controlled by the other side. The purpose of the church is to be Christ's body in the world, united as one and working out his purpose in the ultimate reversal of the three falls of the primeval history. So if you can take that truth to heart, you've just removed one of Satan's arrows from his quiver. There's no such thing as Nephilim bloodlines. Now your task is to spread that word. You have no idea how many people believe they are beyond saving because they think they're ineligible biologically to receive the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. The truth is that we receive the sin nature not genetically but genealogically, which is why our connection to Adam is as important as our adoption in Christ. Why is adoption so important? Because adoption breaks the chain of genealogy. It sets you free from the inheritance of sin and death. Once you're adopted as the son of God in Christ Jesus, your ties to the transgressions of Adam, the sin of the Nephilim and the depravity of the Rephaim are all severed clean. You're a new creation being conformed to the likeness of Christ. And it starts with faith growing into allegiance. And that's why this truth about the so-called serpent seed and Nephilim bloodlines needs to get out there. If this brief explanation has raised more questions for you, Send them in and I will tackle them. But hopefully this has at least got you thinking about the absurdity of the idea that you could actually be related to Satan or to a giant or something from a biological perspective. Well, I'm blown away as always, Tim. Thank you so much. These are things I honestly never really heard or thought of before even, and yet it makes so much sense really from even a surface level reading of the New Testament. Hopefully people are going to hear this and get it out there and people can start healing from the belief that they are ineligible for salvation. I want to start praying that people take take this word and run with it. It's so important. Amen, brother. All right. Well, I think that's all we've got time for, and uh, we'll catch you next week. It's time to wrap up today's episode, but if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant Questions. 
questions. We're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on Amazon or Goodreads to help it become more visible in search results. Even if you just give it stars, that'll help. But a full review is certainly really appreciated. Please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show. In the future, we want to be talking about your stories as well, not just our own. So if you have had a particular paranormal or spiritual experience, we want to hear from you. And we're also looking for your testimonies about how you have found the content and the answers to giant questions to be helpful and or useful. Of course, this podcast comes out every week, but you want to make sure you never miss an episode. So if you haven't already subscribed, do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops. That's all we have time for today. We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Thank you for listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, a production of the Raven Creek Social Club. If you like what you heard today, please take a moment to rate or review the show. Music supplied under copyright by Grave Forsaken, graveforsaken.com. You can get the book, Answers to Giant Questions by PK Stephanie on Amazon, paperback and figure format. Check out the other podcasts at ravencreeksc.com and over giantanswers.com. I never thought that people thought themselves unworthy, well, we're all unworthy, ineligible mm. for salvation because, you know, they're descended from this or that. And I, that's, that's all new to me. It's the first time I've heard that. Oh. What a, yeah. what a lie that is. And it, it is increasingly common, and that's why I want to speak out against it, you know. Mm. Um, I can remember actually back in our early days evangelizing in Frio, um, yep. I was sitting on a park bench one day and found a little um, tract oh, sitting yeah. there, you know, those little cartoon-type things. Yeah. With, uh, with a bit of a message in them. And, of course, I, you know, you grow up going to Baptist church, you know what those things are. And I thought, oh, someone's left a little evangelism tract there and I'll, I'll pick it up and read it. Um, turns out it was actually issued by the Satanic Church and it was a little um, illustration of, like, two people talking. So, you know, one guy's trying to... Uh, you know, share the Christian gospel with this other person and they've turned around and gone, oh, well, you know, that might apply to you and, you know, you need that for your sins, but I'm actually not a sinner because I'm not descended from Adam. <laughs> <laughs> wow, okay. And, um, wow. yeah, it's just, just crazy that um, you've actually got the, the satanic church, and this was back in the 90s, yeah. Basically, basically doing counter evangelism. Yeah. And using that kind wow. of thing to put the thought in people's minds, you know, hey, maybe you don't uh, in, inherit the sin nature uh, at all and you don't need salvation. It's really hard to take when you sit down and think about the implications of it and what it's doing to people in the world, you know? Mm. So, yeah, I, I thought that was worth. Uh, worth having a look at and yeah it was it's one of the primary drivers behind why i do this podcast that kind of thing Um, because it all comes out of how you understand the primeval history i went to woolies the other day and um 
I always just have a quick glance through the toy section because, you know, I've got three kids and sometimes you just want to get them something. Oh, yes. Yep. And um, I saw the Matchbox cars. And yes. You might remember that uh, I used to collect them. Yep. And uh, I still have those. Oh, nice. Uh, somewhere here in this shed, there is like a suitcase full of wow. uh, collectible Matchbox cars from 20-odd years ago. Wow. And uh, anyway, uh, I'm there in Woolies and I see uh, a new release model of the 1961 Falcon Ute. Right. Which uh, is like, yeah, a brand new thing that they haven't done before. Okay. And I thought, well, i gotta, I got to get that. Yeah. Um, so I bought two. Nice. And uh, that way I, I can keep one in the box and have one on display because... The yep. boxes now, they're just, they've gone back to the old style boxes where there's no sort of display factor. You can't sort of show them off. There's no clear packaging. Uh, it's just cardboard. Oh, uh, right, right. So it's in there and it's wrapped in paper, but you can't look at it. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, right, okay. Yeah, it's just in a, like a box that you can't see through. Yeah. Oh, that's frustrating. Yeah, so, um, yeah, I had to buy two and that way I can get one out and, yeah, have it there to look at. I've got the, um, well, I'm looking at one now, which is the Hot Wheels um, Wind Raider. That, um, oh, right. So basically they shrunk down all the vehicles and I've got, yeah. a bat, I've got a couple of Batmobiles and a Batwing, the Back to the Future car, the Ninja Turtles party wagon, the Ghostbusters, oh, yeah. Ecto, like it's pretty cool. Like, yeah, there's, so whenever I see like pop culture ones like that, I'll get them. And yeah, I just bought two of the... Um, uh, the Nexus Toy Fair that I went to a couple of weeks ago. I got the another uh, the Battle Ram, I think it is, oh, yeah. and the no, it's not. It's oh, I can't remember what it is. And the Land Shark and the um, Thunder Tank from Thundercats. Right. Yeah, I mean that's a good little thing to buy because they're small. They don't take up a lot of space, and they're just going to represent that kind of yeah pop culture goodness. Yeah. Um, yeah. I. I remember ages back seeing uh, Hot Wheels had done the uh, Scooby-Doo mystery machine. Oh, yes. I should have got one of those, but I didn't. <laughs> yeah, I haven't seen those anywhere. Yeah. yeah, it's funny. Whenever I get a big W or Target, it's always people my age in the toy section. Yeah. Like, you just give them a, a knowing, like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's never kids in there. <laughs> so just like middle-aged men like me just trying to relive it. Yeah. It's yeah. a big market out there. Yeah.